Our sermon passage today is Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and followed, sorry, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for, for us as Romans or accept, to accept or practice. The, joint, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "'Do not harm yourself, for we are all here.' And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. 
And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to you to sorry, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thanks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to come, to gather together and worship you, to lift up song, to read your word. Pray that you would be at work today as we continue our missions month, that you would show us truths out of your word, that we would understand the task that you've given us to carry the gospel to those around us, to the ends of the world. Lord, I pray that you would motivate each and, one, each and every one of us to be a part of that. God, I am inadequate for this task. There's absolutely nothing of value I have to offer today, but your word has everything of value to offer. So I pray that you would make very little of me and very much of your word and your truths and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Zane Sills. I have the privilege of serving as an elder here at Redeemer Church. If you are a first-time guest with us today, our normal method of preaching is to pick a book of the Bible and then work through it from beginning to end. And so what we've been doing for the past several months is working through the book of Exodus, and that's where we will return in a couple of weeks. Uh, But as you've seen so far, and if you've been with us in the past few weeks, we're taking a short break from that. Uh, Every February at Redeemer, we do Missions Month. And we are taking the whole month to preach through various portions of the book of Acts and talk about our purpose and our main job as Christians here on this earth. So we're not doing Missions Month because we like programs. We're not doing it because we don't think much of the book of Exodus and we're wanting to try and break up the monotony. Above all, we're not doing it just to do it or just to pay lip service to the idea of missions. We are doing this because we are genuinely convinced that our chief reason for existence is to glorify God and that our primary charge from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to build his kingdom through the spread of the gospel message. And even though we know that's our main job, and you probably can't find a single member of Redeemer Church who would disagree with that statement, because we are weak and because we are frail, because we are sinners, because we are so easily distracted by the mundane things in life, we need to be constantly reminded of this truth, that it's our job to share the gospel with those around us. Jesus calls us to mission, and every significant decision we make in life as Christians ought to be made with a view towards how it's going to further that goal. Every significant decision we make ought to be made with a view towards how is it going to enable us to be better ambassadors of the kingdom of Christ. So today, with that in mind, we're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 16 and looking at some of the things that we should be considering in our pursuit of mission. 
So two weeks ago, our pastor Jamie kicked off this series. He preached through uh, part of Acts chapter 1. He introduced the idea that we'd be talking about this month and talked some about how the Holy Spirit enables and fuels our mission endeavors. And then last week, our associate pastor Austin preached through the passage on Peter and Cornelius and talked about God opening up the gospel to the Gentiles and to the world and how that was unexpected and that how we shouldn't call anybody unclean who God has called clean. So today we'll be talking about how mission-focused kingdom work is accomplished. And spoiler alert, God accomplishes the expansion of his kingdom through the church. That's us. And so we're going to be taking a look at a series of stories here in Acts chapter 16. It's a, it's a very lengthy chapter. Thank you, Beth, for reading all of that. And we're, we're going to do our best in about 30 minutes to take a look at various parts of these stories and use those as a springboard for helping us think through how we as a local church should be thinking about and pursuing mission. With that being said, let's jump into our first point today. Our first point is the pursuit of mission through unity and sacrifice the pursuit of mission through unity and sacrifice. And so here, right at the beginning of chapter 16, Timothy gives us a great picture of this because we see something really interesting happening here in just the first few verses. So Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's passed through the cities of Derby and Lystra, and he meets this young man named Timothy. I think most of us are, are well aware of who Timothy is. He becomes a close confidant of, of Paul, a young elder in the church, and we have two books of the Bible named after him, right? First and Second Timothy, two letters that Paul ends up writing to Timothy. So in Timothy's narrative introduction, Luke highlights his ethnic background, which is that he's half Jew and half Gentile. His, his father's a Gentile and his mother's a Jew. And then it notes that Paul circumcises him because of the Jews that were in those places, so this is a very notable event. It looks like it, it, it's something we could probably overlook quite easily, but it's very notable, in the, especially in the broader context of the book of Acts. But it's going to require us zooming out for just a couple of minutes to talk about that context, so, so bear with me. Just one chapter before what we're talking about today, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council takes place. If you're not familiar with the Jerusalem Council, it's one of the most notable events in early church history and deals directly with the issue of circumcision among other Old Testament laws. You see, there was a significant contingent of Jewish people in the early church who claimed that in order to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, one also had to follow various Old Testament laws, notably including men being circumcised. Austin touched on this a little bit last week, but in the Old Testament period, if a Gentile was going to convert to Judaism and follow the God of Israel, they also had to commit to following the laws from the Torah. For a man, this included being circumcised. We see that in Exodus 12, uh, verse 48, which we talked about a few weeks ago when Jamie was going through that. So let's fast forward to the time of the New Testament. At this point, the Son of God, Jesus, has come to earth, and he's fulfilled the Old Testament law by completing his redemptive work on the cross. And although we could spend an entire semester-long course talking about the theology behind all of this, the Cliff Notes version is that certain aspects of the Old Testament law were only intended as a placeholder or a guardian to point forward to Christ until he came. But then he fulfilled them, and there's no longer a need to follow those laws because we have Jesus now. We have something better than the law that was given. So some, for some Jewish believers in the early church, this was very understandably a, a hard concept for them. Their ancestors had been meticulously following all these laws for almost 2,000 years. So they claimed that since Gentile believers were required to be circumcised in Old Testament times, they needed to be circumcised even now after Jesus. 
except they were missing a key distinction and they were falling into heresy and making an argument. In the Old Testament, it was never circumcision that saved a person, right? That never saved a person. Circumcision was just an outward evidence that someone claimed to belong to the people of God. We see Paul make that very argument at the end of Romans chapter uh, 2 and and, in various other places as well. In the time of Acts, they were arguing that circumcision was a necessary prerequisite for belonging to the people of God. So they went as far as to say, and we see this in Acts chapter 15, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. So do you see what they were doing here? They were essentially adding a works requirement to the obtaining of salvation, which is not right. So back to the Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15. A council of apostles and other church leaders issues a letter declaring that circumcision is not necessary for salvation and that the requirement should not be held over anyone's head. And remember, Paul was a significant participant in this this event and the decision of the Jerusalem council. And if anyone still doubts Paul's seriousness of, of this, his stance on this issue, all you have to do is go and read the book of Galatians because Paul absolutely eviscerates the circumcision party in the book of Galatians. So with all that being said, let me direct your attention to Acts 16, verse 3. Right here it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what in the world is going on here? Paul just spent significant effort as part of the Jerusalem council arguing that people don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Furthermore, in Galatians, as I talked about, he argues the same point and even goes so far as to say the reason that he doesn't get Titus, who is a Gentile circumcised, is because he doesn't want to give an inch to the circumcision heresy. But here, Timothy gets circumcised in the face of the same controversy. So why is that? Why the difference in approach? Well, the answer ties directly into our theme for this month, its mission. Timothy gets circumcised because of his commitment to the mission, because of his commitment to the gospel, and because of his commitment to participating in kingdom building work. Timothy is not getting circumcised here because he needs to complete his salvation. That's not necessary. Timothy is getting circumcised here because as part of their mission and church building strategy, when Paul and his team would go into new towns, they would often start in the, in the synagogues and speak to the Jews, right? Because they had background in the Old Testament scriptures and were expecting the, the Messiah. So they would start there with the Jewish people. And because of cultural practices the Jewish people have, Timothy, as a half-Jew being uncircumcised, would be a practical barrier to effective kingdom work. If Timothy approached the Jewish people in the cities they were traveling as an uncircumcised Jew in that culture, they would have viewed him as unclean and wouldn't have wanted to have anything to do with him. So he would not have been able to effectively evangelize or disciple in that context. So the point here is that not that Timothy was getting circumcised to be saved. He was willing to sacrifice his own personal preferences, his opinions, his privileges, and his rights in order to focus on the unity of the mission of spreading the gospel throughout the land. And let's remember, this is not some small sacrifice for Timothy to be making. This isn't some minor preference like Coke versus Pepsi or the Tennessee Vols versus the Georgia Bulldogs. By the way, Georgia Bulldogs is the right answer to that question. And don't worry, parents, I'll avoid the nitty-gritty details here because we all are very well aware of what circumcision is and what that entails. But Timothy is an adult man, and getting circumcised is not something that any adult man would choose to do on a whim, right? It's, it's not going to be a fun experience for him. And yet Timothy counts it as loss for the sake of the kingdom of God. He counts it as loss for the sake of pursuing mission. 
Timothy understands that his uncircumcision is going to be a barrier to effective ministry and in unity of carrying out that ministry with the Jewish people who are in the churches in those cities. And just as important as what Timothy does here and the sacrifice he makes, I think is just as important as what he apparently doesn't do and doesn't say here. Apparently, Timothy doesn't say this whole circumcision thing is a silly and outdated cultural preference, and I'm going to make my point. Apparently, Timothy doesn't say these theological neophytes need to learn a thing or two from me, and I'm going to draw my line in the sand. Timothy apparently doesn't say any of those things. I'm guessing a lot of us would. In fact, if I had been Timothy, those are probably the two arguments that I would have definitely been chomping at the bit to make. But Timothy doesn't do that. Instead, Timothy makes a great personal sacrifice for unity and pursuing the mission. So what does this mean for us? We don't have the same cultural issues in 2001 Tennessee, or 2021 Tennessee, that Paul and Timothy, yeah, I went 20 years in the past there. Um, We don't have the same cultural issues that Paul and Timothy had in the first century, right? Uh, Fortunately, we don't have the circumcision police running around Redeemer Church checking on everybody. That would certainly be less than ideal. But guess what? We have no shortage of issues and things and opinions and cultural preferences that would seek to divide us as a body of Christ. We have wide diversity of opinions on all sorts of things, even within a relatively small church like Redeemer. Things that would seek to distract us from our mission of sharing the gospel with and discipling those God has put in our lives. And unfortunately, we don't have to look very far beyond the past 12 months to identify some really obvious examples of that kind of division. But even if 2020 and 2021 in America seems like a a uniquely divisive time, and in some ways it probably is, the enemy taking issues and using them to try and divide the church and inhibit the effectiveness of our mission is hardly a unique thing. It's not unprecedented. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. It's not as if our forebears never experienced any divisiveness and controversy within the body of Christ. And they responded to it, I think, by doing the same thing Timothy did, by following his example and pursuing unity and sacrifice. So with all that being said, again, I doubt anybody in this congregation has really ever been embroiled in a serious controversy over the issue of circumcision. But the question that you need to ask yourself, the question that I need to ask myself, the question that we all need to ask ourselves is what are the issues or beliefs or opinions that I hold so dear that I would be unwilling to sacrifice them for the larger purpose of advancing the kingdom? Are there any rights or privileges that I am unwilling to forgo? Are there any compromises that I'm unwilling to consider, even if that would mean that Redeemer would be more effectively a light in this community in Hendersonville and the greater Nashville area? And I promise you, I'm not trying to speak to one particular issue this morning or one particular group of people. These are a series of questions that all of us, man, woman, young, old, whoever you are, we all need to be asking ourselves. So just as I ask you to examine yourself, identify what are those extra biblical things that you hold dear in your heart, and then think about Timothy. Think about what he was willing to do for the sake of unity in advancing the gospel of Christ Jesus. And understand, I'm not asking that anyone here would sacrifice on a legitimately core gospel issue. Let's go back to the text in Acts chapter 16. That's not what they did. What happens here? They don't sacrifice on the gospel. They give the letter that the Jerusalem Council issued to all the churches that they go to. We see that in verse, uh, verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles 
and the elders who are in Jerusalem. So they still stick to the core gospel issue, but they do it in the most unifying way possible with Timothy making a great personal sacrifice in pursuit of that mission. And what's the result when they stick to the core gospel issues and they hold the gospel tightly and they hold personal preference loosely? What's the result of that? Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. That's what we should all want for Redeemer. So verse 5 also sets us up to transition into the second point of today's sermon, the pursuit of mission through people the pursuit of mission through people. And so what we see here is that God accomplishes his mission through the church and that the church is built through people. That's us. Certainly not apart from the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, but God chooses to accomplish the spread of the gospel through us, the church, people. And the first thing we see here is that the work in Acts chapter 16 that's taking, that's taking place and then going into Philippi is only occurring because the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch are willing to send out people to do missions work. Those churches in Jerusalem and Philippi, they could have held on to the disciples. They could have held on to Paul, to Barnabas, to Silas. These are very strong Christians who were were obviously very valuable in their kingdom efforts. And certainly they would have been uh, a great asset to the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch if they had hung on to them. But that's not what those churches did. They send them out. They sent them out so that they could be people that would reach people, that would reach people, that would reach people. Because that's how God builds his church. And particularly in this passage, as we get into Philippi, we see the local church being established in that city and built through unexpected people. And I don't want to belabor the point too much here since Austin touched on this last week by noting that the gospel opening up to the Gentiles was unexpected by many. But here in Acts 16, we see unexpected people serving as the foundational group for what becomes the Philippian church. The first person we see is Lydia here in verses 11 through 15. And as a woman in a very patriarchal culture, she would have been an unexpected person to be chosen to be an integral part of the founding of this new congregation. In fact, if a secular person in the ancient Near East were wanting to start and build a successful cultural movement they probably wouldn't have chosen to start that movement with women. That's just not how that culture and that society functioned at the time. But God does not value men or women any differently. And in fact, no matter what the culture is throughout history, no matter what, who that culture would treat as lesser or cast off or less valuable or invalidated, we find that God finds these people very, very valuable indeed. This text really clues us into this particular dynamic with Lydia. If you know anything about Paul's MO when he goes into cities in the book of Acts, he generally always starts out going into a synagogue, right? We touched on that earlier. Paul will go into a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he will engage with the Jewish people there because they have access to the scriptures. They're expecting the Messiah to come, right? And so that's a a really nice setup for Paul to talk about, well, the Messiah actually already has come. But in Acts 16, he doesn't go to a synagogue. You'll notice on verse 13 that they seek out a place of prayer. It says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So why is it that when they went into Philippi, they didn't go to a synagogue? They went to a place of prayer instead. Well, the answer is because there was no synagogue in Philippi. See, in Talmudic law, you didn't start a synagogue until you had at least 10 male heads of households. And if you didn't have that, you didn't have a synagogue. You had a place of prayer. 
So in Philippi, they apparently didn't have 10 male believers in God. So there was no synagogue. What they did have was apparently some number of women who were committed to following the God of Israel, and Lydia was among them. So we've got a situation where there's some number of women following God, but they aren't able to have a synagogue in this cultural context because they're women. But then the Spirit of God comes along and says that he's going to build a church in Philippi, and Lydia and these women are going to be an integral part to the foundation of that church. Verses 14 and 15 tells us that the Holy Spirit opens her heart, and she and her household are baptized into the faith. We don't know exactly how long they stayed in Philippi, other than apparently after Paul was able to establish a healthy church and move on. They left Luke behind for some time to help build, further build the church. But while they were there, Lydia's home helped serve as the base while they were there. So she was a very integral uh, part of this congregation. But she wasn't the only unexpected person we see here in the church of Philippi. Afterwards, we see the account of the Philippian jailer. And who would be a more unexpected foundational pillar of the church in Philippi than the jailer who is part of the apparatus that is literally persecuting them and trying to keep them from building a church? Here's a man who was a Gentile. As a jailer, he's most likely a retired soldier from the Roman army, a.k.a. a former part of the army that's conquered most of the known world, including the Holy Land and God's people. And when Paul and Silas are put in prison, it says the jailer puts them in the inner prison and puts them in the stocks, right? Probably the most secure place of the prison. So at this point, if you were going to place odds on who in Philippi was most likely to be the next convert and a key foundational piece of the Philippian church, you probably wouldn't pick the jailer at this point in the story. But that's exactly who God picks. God works through unexpected people to build his kingdom and to build his church. What does this mean for us? God works through small people, the mundane people, the people nobody else would expect, the people that whatever culture considers cast off and set aside. And just like Lydia and the jailer becoming foundational pieces of the church in Philippi, God builds his church everywhere through ordinary, mundane, unexpected people. When thinking about building the church and our church, Redeemer, maybe we should be a little less concerned with emulating our favorite celebrity pastor or theologian or ministry, and more concerned with emulating the little-known people who are faithfully toiling away in little-known churches. People like Lydia and the Philippian jailer. People who would be deemed insignificant or unexpected by our culture or unfortunately maybe even by our own standards. Those good and faithful servants who are giving themselves for nothing more than the glory of the kingdom of God. These are the kinds of people that we want to emulate. These are the kinds of people that we want to reach with the gospel. That's the kind of church that we want to be. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you're the kind of person that thinks, what do I have to offer the kingdom? What do I have to offer the church's ministry of advancing the gospel? I'm a nobody. I don't have a blog with millions of followers. I don't have... PhD from the best in theology from the best seminaries in the world. I don't have, uh, I haven't preached in stadiums around the world. I don't have, uh, I haven't written books that are bestsellers. I can't offer nearly as much to the kingdom as those people. Well, if you're here and you're thinking that way, I think the book of Acts would tell you that you're wrong. It tells you, Acts would tell you that Christ builds his church through the unlikeliest people of all. Acts would tell you that Christ is going to build his church through you. We are a church of normal, mundane people. Let's not try to be anything else. Let's lean into the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and trust that he wants to work through us in everyday circumstances to spread the gospel. 
Now, sometimes that's going to be a lot easier said than done. So let's move to our third point today. The pursuit of mission in the face of conflict. Pursuit of mission in the face of conflict. Now, I personally find these parts of passages really difficult to teach or preach on. That's just, for me, they are. Uh, And it's not because there's anything particularly confusing or unclear that's going on here. It's a pretty straightforward narrative text. It's very clear what's going on. But primarily because our circumstances here in modern-day America and modern-day Tennessee in 2021 are so much different from what Paul and Silas experienced and in the conflict and the opposition that they see here. We've got it really, really good. It's just a lot different than what they had. And a lot of Christians like to bellyache, but in most areas of the country, it's still pretty culturally advantageous to identify as a Christian. For most of us, the worst persecution we've probably experienced or probably will ever experience is maybe some mild mockery, and that's just the truth. But just because our circumstances are so different doesn't mean there's not a valuable truth here in this passage for us. So what's going on? Paul and Silas and the rest of the team, they come into Philippi, they start preaching the gospel, they see some converts, including Lydia and the other women, they're continuing to build the church, and then we see this account of the demon-possessed girl, right? There's this girl who's demon-possessed, and she has some slavers who are basically using her for economic gain, and she starts following Paul and Silas and the others around, and is essentially distracting from their gospel work. And then it says that Paul becomes greatly annoyed and casts the demon out of her. And for some reason, I always find that part of the passage pretty funny, talking about Paul being annoyed. But anyway, he casts the demon out of her, and then the the people that own this slave girl get very upset because their source of income is now gone. So they grab Paul and Silas and they drag them before the magistrates, and they rile up a crowd, and they level all these accusations against them, and they unjustly and illegally, as we see, end up beating them and throwing them in prison. And then we know that, you know, through the rest of the story, that there's, a, there's an earthquake, and uh, they're miraculously delivered. But there's a few important things to note when looking at the conflict that Paul and Silas experience here. One, it is important to note that the conflict and opposition did not happen by accident. That's something that was true then, and it's something that's true now. When we're engaging in gospel work and advancing the kingdom of Christ, when conflict comes, that's not an accident. And not only was it not an accident, the Holy Spirit literally led them directly into this situation. It was his intention. Just earlier in the passage, we see the account of the Macedonian vision. So before they get to Philippi, Paul and the crew are traveling through Asia Minor, which is what modern-day Turkey is. And it notes that Paul keeps on trying to turn north and east because he wants to go up into Asia. And every step of the way, the Holy Spirit keeps blocking them and won't let them go. And so they keep going east because that's where the Spirit is leading them. They eventually get to the east coast of what's modern-day Turkey. And Paul has this vision of a Macedonian man, which is modern-day Greece, Uh, saying, hey, come over here and preach the gospel. So Paul and the crew hop across the sea over into Macedonia. They eventually get to Philippi. And so the Holy Spirit literally led them into this situation. It's no accident. If we or any other Christians around the world experience conflict doing kingdom work, we need to realize it's expected, it's intentional, and it's happening because God is in control. Another thing we need to recognize here in this account is that the goals of God's kingdom and the goals of the world are always going to be in conflict. They just always are. In this case, freeing the girl 
meant economic loss for her owners. They were profiting off her literal enslavement by a demon. Not only was Christianity at odds and with their, uh, with, at odds with these men and their goal of immoral economic gain through the enslavement of this girl, but they made the argument that Christianity was inc- incompatible with Roman culture, law, and religion. Look what they say here in verse 21. It says, they, Paul and Silas, advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And guess what? They were right. Christianity wasn't compatible with the Roman way of life, and it shouldn't have been compatible with the Roman way of life. And we need to recognize that Christianity is, is simply not compatible with the world's structures. And sometimes that's really obvious in certain places around the world where you can be actually put in jail or even martyred for preaching the gospel. But we also need to keep in mind in other places where the conflict isn't quite as on the nose or quite as on the surface, that Christianity and the world's structures the world's institutions, the world's culture are never going to be compatible. And any effort to make Christianity and secular culture perfectly compatible is only going to result in blunting and compromising the faith, not the other way around. Instead of trying to fix society's broken structures in order to dodge or resolve that conflict, our focus needs to be on sharing the gospel and seeing the Lord change people's hearts and then recognizing the conflict's just gonna come anyway. We already know, we have the advantage, the great advantage of already knowing what the end of the story is, right? The world doesn't get perfectly fixed until Jesus returns and he makes all things new and sets up the perfect kingdom that will reign for eternity. In the meantime, our job is to engage in mission till such a time as he chooses to return. In this life, the church does not get a taste of the kingdom by abandoning missions work in favor of trying to achieve some sort of temporal utopian proxy for the kingdom of God. We experience the kingdom by engaging in kingdom building work through God's tool, the local church, through spreading the gospel. And it's not always easy, and sometimes there's conflict, but that's what we should be doing. So in closing here, you know, mission is not easy. Nobody's saying missions is easy. I'm certainly not saying that missions is easy. In fact, Jesus didn't say missions was easy. Before he left this world, he told them, his disciples, that missions was going to be very, very difficult. And even in the best of times, missions is not easy. And then you take a look at the last 12 months, and it's even harder with COVID and all the restrictions and difficulties that have come out of that. Just basic interaction with other human beings, which is the foundational part of evangelism and sharing the gospel has been made to be very, very difficult. But I don't want to leave us on that note that, hey, missions is difficult and it's going to continue to be difficult. Because what I want to highlight is that I think we are at a time where there is a unique opportunity before us, maybe a unique once-in-a-lifetime opportunity unlike the church's experience recently. See, COVID has shined a really big spotlight on all the problems in society, right? It's shined a big spotlight on the needs that people have. It's shined a big spotlight on the gaping holes that people have in their lives. It's shined a spotlight on brokenness. In some cases, it's made that brokenness even worse. So people are longing and searching for something. They can't wait to get back to normal. And yeah, in some ways, I think people just want to be able to go back to the movie theater and see the next Marvel blockbuster that's coming out, or they want to be able to go to a sold-out Preds game and throw some catfish on the ice. And believe me, the next Marvel movie that comes out, I'll be first in line opening weekend when we're back to that place. 
But entertainment and sports and movies are not going to address people's core problems. People are looking for more, and the gospel is the only answer for that. And I think we're at a stage where, we're, as we're coming out of all this mess over the next few months, we have a really unique opportunity to be salt and light in a way that maybe we haven't experienced the same kind of opportunity in the past. People are looking for answers, and so we need to be ready as the church, as Redeemer, here in this area It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen accidentally or on its own. The only way we're going to meet this need and meet this challenge is if we approach it with purpose, with intentionality. It's going to require a lot of work. We've got a property here. We've got this building. We've got these nice green open spaces. We've got the ministry center across the street. As we come out of all this, we need to be thinking about how are we going to leverage what we have to get as many people as we can on this campus so that we can show them the love of Jesus and share the gospel with them. As we come out of this, think about how you can have people into your home, people that are broken, people that have experienced a lot of pain and hurt and suffering and are looking for answers over the past year, and having them into your home and sharing the love of Jesus with them. And I think if we do that, I think if we're really intentional about it, I think the result is going to be what we see here in in verse 16, um, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for your word. I pray if there was anything here that I said today that's unhelpful or untrue, you would just take it from people's minds. I pray that you would help us to remember and recall the things in your word that would tell us that we need to be engaged in mission, Lord. I pray that you would motivate us. I pray that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit because we certainly can't do it on our own. It's only through his power that we're able to do anything. I pray that you would see this church make a gospel impact here in Hendersonville and the greater Nashville area and around the world as we support our other mission endeavors. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.